0: Greetings, I'm J.R. Woodward. James McMurtry joins me for this iteration of Our Social Landscape to talk about his music and American society. Well, a little bit about that stuff at least. McMurtry is a singer-songwriter and tremendous guitarist who was raised mostly in Virginia and currently resides in Texas. His first album, 1989's Too Long in the Wasteland, was produced by John Malencamp and received immediate critical acclaim The accolades for his dozen or so albums since have continued to roll in with Childish Things winning Song and Album of the Year in 2005 at the Americana Music Association Awards in Nashville, Tennessee. Author Stephen King, who owns a radio station in Maine, wrote that McMurtry, quote, may be the truest, fiercest songwriter of his generation, end quote, and his 2002 masterpiece Choctaw Bingo about the crystal methamphetamine industry became that station's most requested song. Now we're going to do a medley of all my hit, McMurtry often quips before he sings the song live. Four-time Grammy winner Jason Isbell, whom McMurtry references during our talk, when asked about McMurtry said, quote, he has that rare gift of being able to make a listener laugh out loud at one line and choke up at the next. I don't think anybody writes better lyrics, end quote. Now, I don't know where his unique open-tuning and 12-string guitar work comes from specifically, but I do know that part of his lyrical ability, at least, comes naturally. His mother was a professor of English at the University of Richmond and the author of numerous academic works. In addition, his father is the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Larry McMurtry, whose novels include *Horsemen Pass By, The Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, and Lonesome Dove. Among many other novels, short stories, and screenplays, which have been adapted to films that have garnered him almost 30 Oscar nominations and eight Academy Award nominations. One of Jancic Murtry's most enduring songs is a statement on corporate America and the devastating effects of outsourcing on American workers. We Can't Make It Here Anymore details the effects of de-industrialization on the working class and addresses issues of race, social class, and the power elite. He started writing a song during the Clinton administration, and it was released during the George W. Bush administration, but its fiends ring true today, and really, probably have since the 1950s.
1: We'll work for food, we'll die for all, we'll kill for power, and to us the spoils. The billionaires get to pay less tax, the working poor get to fall through the cracks. So let em eat jo-
0: Again, McMurtry fan Stephen King stated that We Can't Make It Here was the most memorable protest song since Bob Dylan's 1963 Masters of War, and it's been included in numerous lists of top protest songs of all time. However, this is just one of many songs that attracted me to his music. When I first started this theme for my blog of interviewing artists about their work and its role in social change or social commentary, I made a short list of people that I wanted to talk to people whose work I enjoy listening to and who have something to say about America that's interesting to me. That list included James McMurtry, plus Willie Vallotton, Patterson Hood of the Drive-By Truckers, and Canadian artist Bruce Coburn. Being able to talk to McMurtry was unexpected and it allowed me to hear from three of my four target interviewees. These days you can find him streaming shows from his home on Sundays and Wednesdays by going to his Facebook page. We spoke via Zoom, and the interview picks up with a discussion of insects and the political landscape. In his central Texas town of Lockhart, he has weekly interactions with a multitude of flies.
1: Park it out and, back. Mama's put
0: away the and the flies, I've heard you talk about the flies on your show. Yeah, well, I'm just uh,
2: I'm about a mile and a half north of the stock auction barn, and every Thursday at 11 a.m. they have a cattle sale or sheep or whatever they're selling flies come in with the cows and then you know all through the weekend it's just solid flies
0: wow yeah. where do they go
2: uh, one of them went I think joined the, the, the vice presidential <laughs> uh, campaign entourage but I hadn't heard from him since I don't know how he's
0: faring um, so this communication scholar late communication scholar George Gerbner said the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior all right, so he's a communication scholar. He's looking at the Bible. He's looking at all these old stories. I don't know if you consider yourself more of a storyteller or a musician, uh, I, I both, I would guess, but um, if you are a storyteller, what do your stories tell us about our social world that, like that we're currently living in?
2: There's no universal theme to my work, You know, I, I do it song by song, character by character. I don't think there's any one thing you could say. I do agree with him that stories do shape how we live. But those are not necessarily works of art, and, you know. In these days, it's conspiracy theories. Yeah, you know, not just in the states. You know, I mean, it, QAnon is is not an isolated phenomenon, I and mean, uh, the rise of the Law and Justice Party in Poland all came about because somebody started a conspiracy theory about rival parties sabotaging that airplane that went down.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh?
2: Making martyrs out of Mm-hmm. A couple of people, and that changed the whole government of Poland. You know, because people want to believe these stories for some reason, because it validates them for some reason.
0: Dehumanizes the other and makes them more human. That's a big lives. part of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a big part. But you're not—you don't attempt to make any particular overtures with your stories. They're just stories that you're telling no, about the world. It's, mm-hmm. Do you think you become more political over time? I you know think I think probably a cutting point for a lot of people would have been we can't make it here, you know, in 2005, Cheney's Toy, 2008, State of the Union 2017 or was it there all along and just hiding or had you become more I was there,
2: direct? I always I always had some social commentary worked in, and The safe side was on my second record. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was you know, I, I try to work a little even you know painting by numbers there was sure, a lot sure. you know that there's stuff in there. I just, you know, nowadays I, I try to work in just a reference to military people just so we don't completely forget that they're out there. Mm-hmm. I know nothing of military life, but you know, I have friends that have been in. And, and then you, you drive around the country. For pre-pandemic, I used to drive around the country and, you know, and all across the middle, you know, the, the plain states and southern states, rural towns i'd see banners saying welcome home pfc so and so yeah so you know i knew these people are out there but yeah, you know, there there has been some pressure from a lot of sectors to you know keep politics out of music which is total bullshit you know he, so i try to you know I'll, I'll put in a character like carlos who's you know he's been in the army or he's been he's been in the service and he's damaged from it sure but I'm, I wasn't making a specific anti-war statement. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. just trying to say, hey, we got people over there.
1: Right.
0: What thoughts can get out past the wine, as you said about them. Yeah. Uh, same with Holiday as well, you know, the the guy waiting at the airport.
2: Oh, well, yeah, you, you couldn't miss it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just there. It's in the air. But I didn't hear a lot about it in song other than, you know, Lee Greenwood-type cheerleads. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's not all there is.
0: Yeah, maybe Bruce C- Bruce Springsteen. Maybe I guess maybe a little bit of that, like Brothers of yeah, the yeah. Bridge, or one or two or something. Might have done a couple. Well, you- I mean, it was Chris
2: Christopherson back in the day. You know, he was a medevac sure. pilot, and sure, he wrote some good stuff. And he he covered Billy Joe Shaver's uh, "Good Christian Soldier." Mm-hmm. And I always thought I was thought Chris wrote that, but but Shaver
0: wrote it. <laughs> and chris thought it was good enough you know and he'd been yeah. there well he's written a lot of the good songs chris so yeah. i can understand you wanting to think it's his all the billy Scher- well, he recorded it on
2: his on his second record so mm-hmm. i just assumed chris being a singer songwriter i mean he must yeah. have written that but he didn't. yeah
0: yeah didn't he live with shell silverstein for a while back in nashville i think they were roommates trying to make it as songwriters and then shell silverstein yeah. started writing those books you know the kids books
2: could have been on Silverstein had a string of hits with Bobby Bear,
0: you know, and a lot, a lot of people
2: co-wrote with with Shell.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Point of course. To him. Yeah. Do you do you see? I was going to ask you if you think. Do you see any musicians that you think kind of do it right in terms of their art and politics and political statements? So I guess Christopherson would be one. Do you have anybody else, either in the past or contemporary, that you? Invisible.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, he's doing a great job.
0: Yeah. Did you read his uh, his New York Times thing when John Prine died? That was a really alo- it was a really eloquent obituary about John Prine. I guess they were pretty close. Been, um, Gil Scott Heron, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about when I was going to ask you the question. I'm thinking, who would I? And I listened to a lot of Gil Scott Heron when I was coming of age, and even like yeah. the Clash and some of that. You know, just wondered if you were if you had that listening to anybody in particular. But yeah, Jason Isbell. Uh, I just saw he left the CMA did you see that left the country music yeah. association horns I don't know it's, I guess it's symbolic but I get it
1: with my soul empty yeah, my place. to do with my ball and chain I'm out here in the open air and I can't find it anywhere and I'm so lost without it it was such a part of me
0: I guess I'll get along how hard can it be um, thinking about some of your uh, characters like in your songs uh, specifically so um you know they're separate people right but they often and I've, i think i've read you say somewhere the songs are often just snippets of different experiences and people that you've put together but they often come from a similar a similar wellspring of you know working class day-to-day struggles that kind of thing people on the margins so i'm thinking specifically of like carlisle's hall from your most recent album down across the delaware uh, painting My Numbers, you work from the neck down. That's a great line. First first song on the first album. Memorial Day, a bunch of others. So what, what do you think brought these characters to where they are? Like, What is it about the American experience that has pushed these people to the margins, um, either culturally or structurally or economically? Uh,
2: I don't know. I write songs just from a couple of lines and a melody, and I, I hear it in my head, and I think, who said that? So I try to come up with a character. It might have said these lines and then from the character sometimes i can get a story and put it into a verse chorus structure and then i get a song um i don't really know what it is in the american experience or the human experience that, that makes them the way they are you know i hadn't really thought about it I just follow the thread until i have something i can sing without cringing
0: <laughs> right. so this the lines that you hear or that come to you? Uh,
2: sometimes. Well, you know, for example, working from the neck down, I actually stole that from uh, one of my father's essays. He had a book of essays called In a Narrow Grave, Essays on Texas. And and there's one about where he goes to visit the movie set where they're making a hood, which was made from his first novel, Horseman Pass By.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: And his cousin Alfred leased them land and cattle and shipping pens and everything they needed for location on that and but Larry came up to the set one day and I think it was a scene that probably got cut but they were pushing these cattle through a chute with a headgate because they were vaccinating or something and and Paul Newman was actually working the headgate and headgates in those days were fairly dangerous if you didn't catch the cow on the first stroke that cow might thrash and send that lever back and break your collarbone and larry knew this (laughs) he wasn't going to go near that thing but he asked one of the stock wranglers like don't they know newman can get his neck broken like that he's probably might not be insured for that much (laughs) and the wrangler said well this is what the director wanted and they said i'm just one of the head wranglers said i'm just
0: working from the neck down so you know it wasn't theirs to question why
2: (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure
0: so the words of these ideas and images that come to you that you want to put a melody to uh, they're not typically about the affluent or people that have a lot of power so certain things just resonate i guess with you more than others
2: well i've known more people that worked for a living than not Uh, i have known some rich people and you know i grew up in northern virginia and So I knew the whole spectrum, but I just, I knew more people that worked than didn't. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Uh, The guy from the neck down, uh, bringing it into right now, you think that group of people politically, are they active? Are they politically active? Are they voting? Do they vote for Trump? Some of them are
2: now. Yeah. And yeah, that was an amazing, you know, most of my extended family voted for Trump. And some of them believe that us liberals are, are, have some kind of death cult uh, trafficking in children and all that. You know, they believe that stuff. Yeah.
0: Somebody got elected in Georgia on that platform.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, that doesn't <laughs> surprise me at all. And, yeah. But, you know, we got on the game way late. I and mean, I don't know why, you know, when Timothy McVeigh blew the site off that building in Oklahoma City, there should have been some money devoted to st- sociological study of, of the of middle america at that right. time yeah because you know i could see this coming
0: yeah yeah the alfred murr building i think it was the federal building yep. yeah yeah yeah
2: there's <laughs> a park there now that uh, like they left the shell of the building around it and and then somebody commissioned these copper chairs that represent everybody that died in it
0: okay and some of those are little chairs Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because mm-hmm. of the daycare or something i think that a daycare yeah, in the the daycare
2: right on the side where where it blew but yeah you know, that anger has been there for a long time and it's it's basically a result of, of the civil rights movement um you know there's there is this feeling among white people that they've been denied something mm-hmm. and that non-whites have been given a free ride in some way um uh, I mean, my grandmother was as racist as anybody. And the most autobiographical song I ever wrote was called 12 O'Clock Whistle.
0: I like that song. I was going to ask you about it later. Go ahead. (laughs) Well,
2: I mean, my grandmother, she really did believe we were better than everybody else because we were white. And uh, and she would tell me, well, black, you know, colored people are fine as long as they keep their place. And I'm thinking, okay, when I get back to Washington, D.C., and i go to miss jackson's third grade class do i ask my teacher if she's keeping her place <laughs> and do i ask the kid sitting next to me who's from uganda and his father works in the embassy is he keeping his place that sort of thing fortunately i knew better um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah. You know, that's that's the kind of mentality that is in my roots a generation or two back
0: mm-hmm. You ever get? Did you ever get any flack for saying we're driving through Niggertown, little honey, lock the doors or whatever?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, but like that's straight out of my grandmother's mouth. She had this move. Like if she saw a black man walking on the s- sidewalk, her hand would shoot across from the driver's side, knock you into Adam's apple, lock the door, hit you in the nose going over your head to lock the back door, <laughs> and then twist around and rock, lock both the driver's side door. She's going 30 miles an hour careening down the street. <laughs> in the big old... that was another myth they told around you know they'll they'll jump right in the car with you you know no they won't
0: yeah 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 i I (laughs) thought about that song
2: that was you know those words are verbatim out of granny's mouth you know you know if there if there had been another word i could have used that would have worked i I would have but you know i I had to put that in the song at the risk of of being branded racist um this because you know the, the problem with songs is you sing it in your voice people don't always know it's a character that's singing it and especially if you're driving through rush hour traffic in Dayton Ohio and you know you hear this white guy talking about nigger town you don't know he's singing from his grand, fictional grandmother's yeah. or real grandmother's point of view you just hear the words and you're mad and you call up the station and you get some other white guy saying well in the context of the song sir you know and you just you don't wanna do that. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. It's a, you can do that as a piece of art, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just too dangerous. Yeah, who's
0: who gets to tell whose stories and things like that is a pretty uh, complicated You don't wanna right hurt now. people.
2: Yeah, you, know, right. you wanna make your art but you don't wanna hurt people. Sometimes you're gonna hurt people. Right. If you to really try to make your art and but you wanna limit that, limit the, limit well, the numbers as like much as you can. Side. Sure.
1: Spraying DDT, it kept the mosquitoes down. And that stuff won't hurt you none, the neighbor lady'd say. Encephalitis, now that can ruin your day. And granny was hanging out, wash, talking across the fence neighbor lady nodded like it all made sense she's just gonna stay with him till the kids are grown fetch me that clothespin up off the ground would you hunt won't you
0: stay with me uh, that that leads me to a question I was going to ask in a minute, but it's it's a good segue into that the experiences of uh, men and women. Like you've written from both narration of a woman narrator and a man narrator. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Rachel's song, right. uh, Ruby and Carlos, Light to Shine, Fireline Road, fucking heartbreaking song. Do you think this experience of these people that come into your head that are struggling or whatnot, is there a difference in that between men and women, or is, is it just sure a story? I'm sure there are, but, but I, don't, I don't need
2: to know that much to write a song. Mm-hmm. You know, the lucky part about songs is short form. You don't use very many words, so you don't have to reveal what you don't know mm-hmm. if you're careful.
0: I, I heard uh, John Prine, an interview with John Prine, Uh, No, it was in No Depression magazine, and somebody a long time ago had questioned why he wrote Angel from Montgomery, like from a woman's perspective, and he said, I'm just telling a story. I'm not telling my personal story. I'm just telling a story, but then I heard an interview with Jim Harrison on um, a podcast called Home of the Brave uh, I don't even listen to podcasts, but I like that one. And this guy interviewed Jim Harrison not long before he died, and he said it, you have to inhabit every character. And he had a hard time writing Dalva to to get into the mentality or the life of a woman. Now, granted, he's writing novels, but he's also wrote a lot of poetry and some shorter stuff too. But he's saying he had a really hard time writing from a woman's perspective. John Prine saying, "Man, I'm just telling a story, and a woman has to be. It just happens to be telling it."
2: That may be different with between uh, prose and and verse. Um, yeah, D- Dalva was brilliant. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, that's the only. I think that's the only uh, book of Harrison's I ever wrote. I, I had dinner with him one time. And he used to winter down in Patagonia, Arizona, mm-hmm. and uh, he he kind of knew Larry and. Invited me down there for dinner one time. Yeah, he fed me some Marin's quail that he'd killed (laughs) down there by Fort Huachuca somewhere.
0: Yeah, he was quite a cook, I guess, wasn't he? He he wrote a lot about food. Yeah, excellent. And, you know, bird hunter. Must have been an interesting conversation because this interview I heard with him, he just had great knowledge of literature and philosophy and stuff. He just, his brain was just gone.
2: Loved <laughs> yeah, Love to cook, love to eat. Yeah, he didn't that was The
0: only time I ever met him was that time.
2: Mm-hmm. Friends of his around, well, actually, yeah, those guys from Livingston. Uh, there's uh-huh. a guy, there's a guy uh Charles, I can't remember his last name. He owns a restaurant in Destin, Florida called Harbor Docks. Mm-hmm. And he owns another one in Tuscaloosa called Chuck's Fish, and it's really good line caught fish from Florida Panhandle. But okay. he would hang out in Montana sometimes and he showed up up there at one one of those festivals around Livingston when Harrison was, he had to go in for some back surgery or something. And and they said, well, you know, he's going to need something to drink. And they, they had to give him like IV vodka, <laughs> to keep him, you know, and McGuane was was at one of those things, too. And he said, oh, yeah, they had to give him IV vodka because, you know, people that drink that much, they don't get enough to drink. They shake themselves to death, literally. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. But you wouldn't know it talking to him. No. You know. <laughs>
0: wow.
2: It was just yeah, you didn't you never felt like you were talking to a drunk. It yeah. was just
0: yeah just a great great knowledge. Yeah, I'm just, Thomas am yeah, thomas Livingston's claret
2: and he's fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
0: Livingston's a great town. I mean it's a really cool spot. You know, when I was in Bozeman I went there just to drive to it, it was beautiful that you know, you go over that pass and beautiful but i, I didn't know at the until recent no not recently but until i was there the art the art history of that town with thomas mcgain and i think one of the fondas right was there and peter fonda
2: and yeah, was, uh, richard chatham yeah yep. russell chatham russell, russell, chatham, russell, russell, russell yeah,
0: chatham yeah that great painter yeah yeah that great restaurant there at chatham's yeah
2: um so this well, max crawford lived there The they stole the, the story of Leveland from oh is that right okay yeah max max Ended his days in the, the Murray Hotel in Livingston.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: He locked himself in with 150 cases of red wine. Wow. Yeah. How about that? He was from Florida to Texas, and his his granddad raised wheat and his dad raised cotton.
0: Mm-hmm. That
2: was the basis
0: for that song, Level In. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which uh, has become pretty well known. Uh, and you always talk joke about it when you say it. Somebody else's song that you wrote. Yeah, Robert King. (laughs) Robert King, yeah. Um, So I asked you um, when I first reached out to you about this, uh, the Joni Mitchell quote. And so she had said that when the world, let me get the quote right, she said, um, when the world is a mess and there's no one at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. And so that's what got me actually to thinking about talking to any. Buddy, who I considered an artist, probably to find was, do, do you think that's true? Do you need? Do you feel like a, uh, Nina Simone said, an artist's duty is to reflect the times, which is different than, you know, different than creating the times, right? Reflecting it. Do you think either are the role no, of an artist? An
2: artist, an artist's duty is to make the best art he or she can possibly make. And some people write better in really crazy times. I, I, heard, I read where somebody argued that Dylan Thomas drank himself to death on purpose really because he knew he would never write as well as he had during the war wow huh. that was that time was a gift to him where he could really you know do his work um, i don't know that artists have a duty particularly other, other than as i said to you know just do your best work whenever it comes about it may be easier to do good work in in chaos and craziness but for some it may not my grandfather used to talk about horsemen and he had eight brothers and they could all ride bronx because they had to because my great-grandfather raised saddle horses and the way they broke horses then was you just got on them (laughs) and you know great-grandfather i never met but he'd, he'd rope a horse and you know put a hackamore and a saddle on it and Throw oh, one of those nine-year-old boys up there, and if they could ride the horse, the horse was his. If he couldn't, oh. he walked, right yeah. <laughs> or limped. <laughs> so they, could, they could all ride bros but some <laughs> of them were better at it than others. And and Granddad, he said, his brother Jim, before he got arthritis, was the best horseman of any of them. But that I think Charlie was the best bronc rider. I'm not sure I might have got the... there's some people that can just ride on just stay on no matter what when all hell's breaking loose, and then there's others that can really do the craft I don't know and mm-hmm. that may be an apt analogy I don't know yes
0: yeah, it's, it's uh that's kind of interesting to me that you're you're saying kind of sounds like you're saying that it's it's just art but yet if artists want to be political it's okay to be political but you're not trying to be political but some of it's taken political
2: you don't want to hold it back if that's what you're writing if that's what you're good at yeah Um, i mean i think i don't know it's going to change anybody's mind the the ones with the the best the, the comics have the best shot at it ah Because, you know, they're protected under satire. Okay. And if you get people laughing, regardless of their beliefs, they've heard you. Right. You know, and some of us have to sink in. I think think we really need the comics if they're inclined. George Carlin type. Mm Mm-hmm. George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. Yeah. uh, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. uh, Sam Kennison. uh, Who was the really good one from Houston? I'm spacing on his name right now. He died of pancreatic cancer a little while back. You
0: know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I don't know from Houston but the pancreatic cancer. I can I can remember. I can't get the name. Mm -hmm.
2: I don't know
1: why. I'm no longer choking on the hair of the dog. Been a couple weeks now since I came out of the fog. The highs are slightly higher, the lows are just as low. It's a mild improvement on the average, even so.
0: It's almost finished, so I appreciate your time. Almost, almost done, if you're okay. Uh, do you, uh, you've addressed both social class issues and race issues in your song. Is, songs, is there, any, uh, is there overlap there? Are those separate issues? Do you think they should be addressed That's together? certainly or?
2: overlap, yeah. And yeah, if you're not white in this country, you're apt to be economically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You might be white and still be economically disadvantaged. Yeah. But you're a lot more likely if you're not white. So, yeah, there's definitely an overlap and a correlation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have this conversation with another faculty member, and he's more of like the social class is it. If you can a- address social class issues, the race issues will kind of take care of themselves. Bill and Hicks. Bill Hicks, Bill there Hicks. you go. Need <laughs> no, to get it. Need to get it. We had to get him in No,
2: we need his name in there. Cause in, And then you'd get it.
0: And then the other side is that, no, there's a difference between, you know, being white and poor and black and poor uh, so that the race still exists outside of just social class issues. But other people really boil it down to social class and say, man, get rid of poverty or at least try to address it. And it's going to benefit everybody. And, you know, that's really where we need to focus our efforts.
2: It will benefit everybody. I don't know that it will get rid of racism. That's something that just has to be learned over and over and over again over time. Mm hmm. It may be something that's hardwired in our cro Magnum brains, which is not at all to say that it's right. Sure. definitely wrong. It serves us no purpose whatsoever now. Uh, But, you know, being human beings, supposedly we have the capacity for thought, and our minds could possibly evolve faster than our simian brains are capable of doing. So, you know, there are things we need to think around
0: okay that's a good way to put it
2: until until the thought
0: makes a hardwired circuit you know racism is one of those Uh i wonder if something else would just take its place some other form of xenophobia some other reason we don't like somebody well yeah that we we have
2: we have this need to be part of something to define ourselves that's what i really don't get because you know i belong to no church No club. I've never joined anything that I can remember except the, you know, Screen Actors Guild and whatever I need to work after. but um, we used to do this gig in in, uh, Marysville, Tennessee at a Harley dealership called Smoky Mountain Harley, and uh, it it was in a building that used to be a Lowe's, so the guy made the lumber shed into an outdoor covered concert venue. And at one time, he let us into his showroom, showed us around, and there were, then there was a room full of jackets and clothes of various sorts. And he gave us some of it, and he, he said he made more money off the clothes than he did the bikes. Wow, I said. Really? He said, "Well, yeah. People don't buy Harleys because they want a bike. They buy Harleys because they want to be part of something, and that's what I sell." Yeah, yeah. And so, and I know people that have joined Harley Harley Riders of America. You know, they bought the bike so they could join the organization, so they have a tribe to belong to. And it's dangerous, I think, in that you you get groupthink, and even if you feel different than the group, you're not going to express it. Right, right. You don't want to stand out in the group. And, you know, eventually you just start believing what the group believes. I, you know, I used to say, you know, if an Irish Catholic wakes up in the morning and doesn't hate Protestants, how's he going to know who he is? <laughs> you know, I'm sure some yeah. of them, a lot of them got past that at this point. But yeah, we define ourselves by our hatreds as much as our loves a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I asked my uh, students, we talk about obedience and conformity, and they like to think they're a lot more independent in their thoughts than they than they are you know yeah yeah we do conform yeah, uh, yeah it yeah reminds me of uh the hurricane party is that uh, the insurance man biker you know still wanting to be a part All of right. the part of the community even though he's not really a biker <laughs> i noticed you don't play on these uh the the shows you do from that space right there you don't play uh we can't make it here anymore is there are you tired of it or yeah well it was dated when i wrote it and it's okay really dated now well kind of i mean like it's it's like no more dated than masters of war is i mean it's the same kind of the issues uh, are still well, there. it is
2: well in terms of me believing it it is because you know i don't at this point in history i don't believe in undoing the globalization that we've done in the 14 years since i wrote the song okay um you know when i first started writing it, it was during the clinton administration when you yeah. know, sourcing was relatively new and i could also you gotta once again i'm writing from a fictional point of view of a fictional character mm-hmm. who might agree with me or my mm-hmm. you know my, my characters don't always agree with me in in terms of you know it's like the kid in in carlisle's hall yeah definitely not agree with me on uh I think we need to regulate and manage fisheries so the fish don't all go away. Sure, sure. You know, we don't have a cod fishery on the Grand Banks anymore.
0: But they're trying to just pay their bills and get as much, get right, what they can. So they
2: don't, they're not going to see it like him. I can't really expect them to see it that way. But, I mean, some of them do. But, you know, as, as far as, you know, bringing the rust belt back the way it was, I don't, one, you can't do it. You can't, yeah two should it be done i mean you have to you know, the people that build those built those cities were were immigrants uh, either from europe or from the american rural south and midwest you know farming got mechanized there's not so many jobs so they all moved there looking for work
0: right right right
2: it's terrible the reasons the work moved away are, are terrible um it happened too fast You know, it hurt a lot of people, and it's basically the the corporate philosophy that that we we owe nothing to anyone but but the boardroom, shareholders. Yeah, Mm yeah, shareholders. So we can outsource if we want to, and bust those pesky unions. Yeah, it's it's a terrible thing. But but we started outsourcing, and we learned how to make products in several different countries and bring them together, and we make good products that way. And you really need. A universal living wage to make it equitable for mm-hmm. people, but I don't know. To undo it might do would probably do more harm than good. I mean, I think it has already. You know, we, we've slowed things down. We backed out of these trade deals. Every trade deal we back out of does not help anybody in the Rust Belt. Right, right. It just right. takes us away from the table, so we don't have a say in the matter. I don't think. Mm. I mean, if you look at. You got to give Trump some credit for for being a master of symbolism. Yeah. He said something early on. He said, I want to be president of Pittsburgh, not Paris.
0: Right. Coal Um, miners and all that shit.
2: He knows that most Americans have never been to Paris or Pittsburgh. (laughs) Right. And they don't, you know, they think of Pittsburgh as the steel town where it matters more to have money than clean air and i know people that grew up in pittsburgh when they had to turn the street lights on in the daytime cuz the smog was so thick wow but by the time i got to pittsburgh those mills had been shut down for 20 years yeah yeah maybe not that long but the air was clean <laughs>
0: So the million dollar question last one. Um, if you in your mind, however you define positive social change, uh if we could if you could suggest one thing that you um think society could do, uh, you know, I, I always answer this question when I talk to people, um like this this duopoly that we have, the, you know, this oligarchy basically in our government, just two parties, both of them, you know, not much changes no matter who you – I would like to address that if I could. But what about you? If you, you know, looking at your songs, some have maxed out all their credit cards, some are working two jobs, living in cars, the big old building was a textile mill, et cetera. How do we address that? If you could choose one magic bullet, what would it be?
2: Um, quit thinking socialism is such a bad word. Uh-huh. I mean, we've come to equate it with hardline communism, even Nazism. Um, But we've done socialism before in a big way. It was called the New Deal. Right, right. Um, The New Deal was full on. It was far left of anything that Obama would have dreamed up, Mm -hmm. and it worked. Um, But, you know, Roosevelt tried collective farming towns, stuff like that. I mean, Johnny Cash comes from it came from a town called dias arkansas which in his autobiography uh, i think it was titled man in black he comes right out and says yeah dias was a was a socialist experiment mm, you know why? collective fields and everybody worked for the company and they were paid in script redeemable at the company store just like a mine or a mill somewhere yeah. but it was farming they did that and, wow. you know, because in those days, you know, they got so down, you know, people, that, well, somebody quoted it once, you know, it felt like there wasn't a nickel in the whole world. These people had lost everything, so they tried anything. The only reason we still think, you know, you can still get people to run away from the word socialism is because we haven't lost everything yet. Too many people still have too much stuff they want to hang on to. Interesting. And their identity is right or left and you know words mean something but even you know, if you if you analyze the word socialist socio like sociology there we go society right, right.
0: it right basically
2: there. means taking care of your own. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard sell in the states because white America will never think of non-America non-white America as its own. Mhm so you know the europeans can be just as racist as us but they bite the bullet and take care of their people and when their colonies came home they took care of them as best they could and when the refugees come over from syria they bitch and scream but you know i've stepped around you know walked down sidewalks that were covered with syrian refugees and in italy and Turin, you know and you know the italians did the best they could with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know they took what 11 million syrians we wouldn't take a hundred thousand of
0: them right, right we had a dog in the fight right exactly yeah we had a whole lot more reason more of a hand in why they were refugees to begin with than italy did that's for sure Well, italy catches
2: it all because they stick way out in the mediterranean and people float up on those islands and yep. yeah, that's just first place they hit so they're charged with you know and then the rest of europe wants italy to keep them out of the the continent you know yeah yeah but yeah but you know i've seen tent cities in paris that numbered in the thousands people jammed up under freeways trying to get out of the rain you know they do the best they can and i think we need to do the best we can and we need to also realize that um everybody in this world is riding on the same rock breathing out of the same air bubble and it's a skinny little bubble. Mm-hmm. Where I'm mm-hmm. sitting now, I'm closer to outer space than I am to Waco, Texas.
0: <laughs> right, right. Interesting. Yeah. It's and
2: it's that way, way it. around the whole globe. And we got what, eight billion people burning shit 24-7? Mm-hmm. And we think mm-hmm. we're not going to affect the climate. Right. Right. So I think, you know, we gotta you know, humankind is going to have to learn to take care of each other or, or it's just going to perish. It's, it's not even about america all right
0: <laughs> yeah but it's hard because america does have a role in that and to get change everybody's going to brand it and label it as anti-worker anti you know we're going to all lose money if we have these environmental regulations and stuff you know how, geez how do you go we're against such money if you a, don't have a planet to live you're going to be yeah you're going you no, to have a lot worse we lost, problems than we've that lost more than
2: half our <laughs> arctic sea ice in the last 40 years you know uh, I don't know how anybody can can argue that we don't need to take care of the environment. Yeah, but they do. We don't have any air to breathe, any water to drink, any food to eat. What good's your money?
0: Yeah, it's not going to be during some sixty-year-old CEO's lifetime, though. You know, he's going to be able to protect himself. Yeah, it might and too. Well, it might.
2: <laughs> it's coming so much quicker than they said it would. You know. Hmm. All it takes is for the Greenland ice sheet to start sliding. Yeah, right. Uh, that thing comes off the rock into the water. You better be driving a Tesla because you won't be getting any gasoline. All our refining is
0: on the coasts. Right, right. Levy, You know, imagine the refugees that will come from that all, oh, yeah. with this, with the sea level rise around the globe in these places. Yeah, yeah. I think Bernie Sanders talked something about like the new New Deal. You know, he talked about like the new New Deal. New you know, new so. But that was that's about all you hear about it, and you hear Venezuela, this socialist nation. You know, like seventy percent of their economic output is held privately in Venezuela, the, the oil companies. You know, like well, you're right. I think we've just branded this anything that's oh, yeah, remotely challenging. Like that,
2: I mean, Trump won South Florida apparently because they just said the word of "socialista," it. and you got all. I guess is these.
0: Cubans and Venezuelans. The
2: Cubans really think Batista was a great guy. I mean, I know Castro screwed it up
0: bad. Right, (laughs) right.
2: But was Batista any better? You know, I'm sure he's better for some people. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, those are the people, the people that had some money. They're the ones that flew that fled because Batista was on their side. And they're the ones now that are old men and women in South Florida who, you know, who actually had money to lose when Castro took over. So they were the, you know, not the group that came in the 80s when Castro cleared out the jails, but the original group you know i grew up with a number of those kids marco rubio is from that you know his parents were that generation and yeah man they they don't they're pretty conservative in their politics and they batista was their friend because they had money yeah fucking smess, man therefore closer to god right therefore closer to god (laughs) that's a good way that's a good note to end it on to an interview with James McMurtry on our social landscape I reached out a few times before he agreed to talk and I'm glad that he did he didn't do too many interviews of this type and shit he might not do too many more after I grilled him with all these fluffy academic type questions I don't know but I got the feeling he didn't care to talk much about himself or to try to explain his work he just writes the songs he writes I guess in an email exchange he told me that he doesn't mind being thought of as political but he doesn't want to be pegged as a political songwriter and that the majority of his songs aren't political at all. That makes sense to me, although I would define a good number of his songs as political. Maybe not overtly, but it's in there. All political systems inherently involve power, and a lot of McMurtry's characters do too. Some with power and a whole lot without. But I can understand not wanting to be typecast as just one type of artist. So knowing what I know now, I'm even more grateful that he agreed to chat with me. Let me also thank his manager Jenny Finlay for putting us in contact and Ty Kane my old graduate student at Montana State for first introducing me to his music. If you have any questions or comments you can email me at oursociallandscape.com. i I'm JR Woodward. Thanks for listening.
1: Out, to the empty night Watching us the snowflakes. Come dancing round the light. Dancing up against the window. It's like they're peeking through the glass. They hover for a moment, and then they fall on past.